Welcome to Truth and Liberty. Thank you for joining our daily live call-in broadcast where trusted leaders bring biblical insights to the issues and you can call in and get your questions answered in real time. According to the Bible, it's the truth you know that sets you free. So call in today to get answers, information, and resources to help you stand for truth and effect godly change in our nation and the world. And now here's your host, Andrew Womack. Welcome to our Wednesday Truth and Liberty Live call-in show. I'm Andrew Womack, and my guest today is Bill Federer. And I'm going to give him a better introduction in just a few minutes, but we've got some things that we want to let you know about. But, man, it's a snowy day in Colorado. I had to drive here in about four or five inches of snow. It's beautiful, but a little hard to get around. Something else. And you live in Florida, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> so this isn't exactly what he's used to. But anyway, we're going to have a great time. If you don't know Bill, I'll give him a better introduction. But let me just mention that starting tomorrow night, I'm starting a conference in Atlanta, in the Atlanta area. And Greg Fritz is going to be my guest there. And that's, so that's November the 9th through the 11th. And it's going to be at the Gas South Convention Center. And we have evening services and uh, morning services. And then on uh, Saturday, we'll have morning and afternoon services. And uh, then I'll be staying over and ministering at the Solid Rock of Atlanta on Sunday at their church. And then on the 8th through the 10th of December, we have what we call the Heart of Christmas, and that's a musical that we put on. And I tell you, it is a first-rate musical. It is done, uh, it's, it's amazing. They have been offered a lot of money to take this to Broadway, and yet the people who do this for us uh, just feel called to use their talents and stuff here and to reach out to people. So I'm promising it would be a first-class experience. You'd love it. It's beautiful here. We've doubled the number of Christmas lights that we put out. And the next week, that's that, December the 8th through the 10th is the Heart of uh, Christmas performance. And then it's the next week uh, on Friday and Saturday and Sunday that we have a live nativity where we actually have camels, horses, sheep, uh, all kinds of animals here. And uh, people drive through and see the lights. Kids can take out, get out and take their pictures, and we give out hot chocolate to everybody. It's really a great time. So anyway, those are some things coming up. I encourage you to go to awmi.net, and you can get more information. And we also encourage you to go to uh, truthandliberty.net, and we have a wealth of information on our website there. We would encourage you to participate in that. It's kind of a clearinghouse where we have many different ministries uh, uh, on there. Matter of fact, Bill Federer's American Minute is on our website, and I see that every day. That is just awesome. I've been reading that thing for years, and I know that you repeat sometimes, but there's just so much information you need to repeat in order to be able to get it. And uh, so anyway, I encourage you to go to truthandliberty.net and you would love it. And last thing, if you want to become a part of this, we now have a five-day-a-week uh, broadcast where this is what we're doing right now. We do this every weekday from 3.30 until 5. And it takes uh, effort. It takes money to put this on. We've got equipment uh, personnel that are running this. And then our website, we put on conferences. Bill was a speaker at one of our conferences just recently. And uh, anyway, there's a lot of expense. I think we have about seven employees and we need people to join with us. And so we ask for people to do an automatic withdrawal, $5 or more per month 
And um, you, if you do that, you become a Truth and Liberty member. You can go to truthandliberty.net slash, I think it's donate, and uh, you can become a partner with us, and we would love to have you. So Dr. Bill Federer here is, is with us, and I tell you, I just love this man, and he, it's amazing uh, the information that you know. I, I don't know how you do it. I've given myself to the Word of God, and I meditate in it day and night. I, you must have to nearly meditate in this day and night, I guess. I don't know how you do it. Well, I sort of consider it a continuation of the book of Acts. And so we get to see God's hand in history. And uh, one of the things that I found interesting is philosophies of history. And so there's the Judeo-Christian, it's linear. It's a beginning point, ending point, prophecies made, prophecies fulfilled, creation, judgment. Uh, there's the animist view of history, which is the circle of life. There's the Marxist view of history, that's a class struggle. There's the nihilist view of history where there's no purpose to anything. And that's the way they teach it in school often. And when you turn from the nihilist view to the linear Judeo-Christian view, it's like driving by a cornfield and you turn the corner and you see the rows line up. Same corn, but it now has an order to it. Hmm. History from a secular point of view, it's all scattered. But then you see it from God's point of view, God has a plan. And the plan is that freedom can spread so that people can have the free choice to give their lives to God and be all that God made them to be so they can help uh, have His will done on earth as it is in heaven. So Bill is on our board of directors for Truth and Liberty, as is David and Tim Barton, or David Barton is. But uh, David specializes in American history, and Bill just, I mean, it's amazing what you know about world history. It's awesome. And so anyway, we could talk about everything. This guy honestly is a treasure, and he just, he knows things that uh, I don't know anybody else that has this same knowledge. Let me just say quickly that he spoke at our, was it our um, Truth and Liberty Conference, or where did you do those two hours? It was a summer. It was our summer family Bible conference. And he did two hours without a break. And I have listened to that already four or five times. And I tell you what, it is awesome. So you can go to our website. You can go look at uh, archived events, Truth, uh, our Summer Family Bible Conference, and look up Bill Federer. And I tell you, if you haven't seen that, you need to see it. It was, it was powerful. It's one of the best things I've ever heard. So we can talk about all kinds of things, but I want to talk specifically about our elections, and I know we could spend the whole time on that, but I also want to talk about the Israeli-Palestine conflict that's going on and specifically get into, uh, you know, one of the things that I keep hearing is that they say, but they're an occupying uh, nation. They need to quit this occupation and stuff. And the little bit that I understand is it's not, that's not an accurate assessment of the thing. And I think you would be able to like pull the rug out from under some of these arguments that they're using about Israel just occupying the Palestinian yeah. area. Matter of fact, I put together a, a DVD called Islamic Conquest Past and Present where I go through some of this history. But um, so Israel has lived in the Middle East from uh, Abraham to David. Uh, and then you go forward, 70 AD, Titus, the Roman emperor, uh, destroys the temple. And there's still remnants of Jews and they're rebelling against the Romans. And so in 135 AD is Hadrian and he decides, I'm just going to get rid of Israel together. And he puts a temple to Jupiter on the Holy Temple Mount. He renames the city uh, Capitolina, Jupiter, and he... Um, Capital of Jupiter, I'm he, assuming. Yeah, and then he uh, forbids Jews from coming within sight of the city on pain of death. He kills millions of them in their games, you know, those Roman Colosseum type games. 
and then he um, has his map changed. It's from, instead of Judea, it's Syria, Palestina. And so that's where you get the name Palestine on the map. It was uh, Hadrian's effort to erase the Jews. He actually hunted down and killed every descendant of David. So there could never, ever be another possible Messiah. And um, so um, we fast forward. You have the, the Roman Empire becomes Christian. And then Islam conquers it, 648 AD. Caliph Umar conquers Jerusalem. And so now it's, it's the... Arab Persian Muslim. And then in around 1071, the Turks come in and they conquer the Arab Persian world. And so really uh, from 1200s to the end of World War One, you have the Ottoman Turkish Empire controlling all this land. And they didn't force the Jews and Christians to convert because it was the non-Muslims that paid the taxes. They were the demi status and second class citizenry. Uh, the Ottoman Empire uh, is called the sick man of Europe. And it's uh, Abdul Hamid II. He's got his 13 wives. And Greece breaks away from the Ottoman Empire. And Bulgaria and Albania and Romania and all these countries are breaking away. And if it would be left to its own, it would have dissolved. But something happens, oil. And so uh, we used to get oil from Wales. And we're chasing these poor animals to extinction until 1859. You have the Drake oil well discovered in Pennsylvania. And then oil discovered in Oklahoma. And then oil discovered in the Middle East. And so Winston Churchill changes the British Navy from coal to oil, but Britain only has one oil well in Sherwood Forest, of all places. And so um, they have a, a treaty with Iran. And so it's called the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. You know it better as BP, Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. And um, then Germany industrializes. It has no oil wells. And so it does a treaty with Turkey the Berlin-Baghdad Railroad. So Abdul Hamid II with Kaiser Wilhelm II, and now we have World War I. And half of it took place in Europe and half of it took place in the Middle East. After World War I, by the way, uh, the British were running short on explosives. Uh, they needed a chemical called acetone, a solvent, and uh, a Jew from Russia named Chaim Wiseman, and he Remember Fiddler on the Roof, the Jews are fleeing. And so he goes to England and he comes up with a bacterial fermentation process from ethanol to butanol to acetone, where they can now take breweries and turn them into making this. And so now Britain has more than enough explosives. And so uh, World War I ends and they redraw the map of Europe, they redraw the map of the Middle East. And they're going to make Chaim Wiseman a sir or a knight, give him some land and thank him for his tremendous contribution to the British war effort. And he said, you know, I'd really like a homeland for the Jewish people. And so they issued the Balfour Declaration in 1917. Interestingly enough, the idea of the Jews going back to the Holy Land came from the Christians' Second Great Awakening revival in America. Now, how is that? So you had the first Great Awakening uh, with uh, George Whitfield preaching, and then there's a second Great Awakening, and they're, you know, camp meeting revivals or whatever. But then uh, in the early 1800s, you had millennialists. And these are people that have finally just saw in the Bible where Jesus is going to come back and rule and reign for a thousand years. Now, millennialists are not like what we're talking about, the millennial generation. You're talking no. about people who believe in the millennial reigner. Correct. And so they discovered, hey, Jesus is going to come back and rule and reign for a thousand years. Mm -hmm. And they saw that before this takes place, the Jews had to be in the Holy Land. And so you had uh, in 1840s, a group of 
Christian Plymouth Brethren, Evangelical Protestants in England, and they're actually going to the Jews and to their synagogues and planting the seed. Hey, you need to start, start thinking about going back because the Messiah is not going to come unless you're back over there. And so this idea, uh, they, they started a uh, Palestine land company. And the word Palestine was the name of the land, but it was always the land of the Jews. So even up to the 1940s and 50s, whenever you'd see Palestine, it was Palestine, the homeland of the Jews. Teddy Roosevelt is writing letters to the Palestinian uh, groups, and there's like, this is the homeland of the Jews. And so, um, so these, uh, they would buy land, and then that influenced Theodore Herzl, and he has the first Zionist Congress in 1897 in Switzerland. And one of the people that was there was Henry Dunant, the founder of the International Red Cross. And so the Jews are buying land in Tel Aviv on their own, which is still part of the Ottoman Empire, and they're just setting up their little farms. And, um, but now that World War I ends, and Lord Balfour issues this declaration, uh, it allows the Jews to have what's called the British Mandate. So after the Spanish-American War, America got Puerto Rico as a mandate the Philippines as a mandate. We were sort of, you know, uh, ruling it, but, but letting them have their freedom. And so the British give this to the Jews. It's everything from the Mediterranean over to Iraq and Syria, all the way down to Egypt, huge area. And uh, uh, it's, it's all working out pretty good, except uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Who's he? He was a lieutenant in Cairo for the British, and he sent on a reconnaissance assignment to check if these Arabs in Mecca would be willing to help the British defeat the Turkish Muslims. And Lawrence of Arabia admitted he lied to the Arabs. He told them that if they helped the British, they would get all the land in the Middle East. And he says, uh, I risk the fraud on my conviction that Arab help was necessary to our quick and speedy victory in the East, and better we win and break our word than lose. He admitted he lied to him. He says, if I was an honest advisor, I'd tell them not to risk their lives in this. He called himself a trickster. And yet, why is this important? Because these Arabs said, hey, we helped the British. We got this promise from Lawrence of Arabia. That land belongs to us. And the British were like, no, we gave uh, this huge chunk of land to British mandate to the Jews. The same land was promised to two people, or two groups, one authorized and one not authorized. And so uh, the British, to their credit, take Fazl, uh, the son of the Sharif of Mecca, who helped Lawrence of Arabia. And they make him the king of Iraq. And he actually welcomed the Jews back. He was moderate. He wanted to criticize the Turks for doing the Armenian genocide. Fazl was a pretty moderate guy. And he thought he was going to get Syria, too. But then they had a San Remo conference, and France decided to grab Syria, and they chased Fazl out. And so now it's about to have another war. And so Winston Churchill steps in, takes half the land that he was going to give the Jews and gives it to Fazl's brother, Abdullah, who's the other son of the Sharif of Mecca. And so uh, the Lawrence of Arabia working with the Arab Sharif of Mecca and one son, Fazl's king of Iraq, other son, Abdullah's king of Jordan. And um, then uh, the Sharif of Mecca sort of waffles on a treaty with the British. And the, the British were known for maybe not keeping their word. Like they promised the Kurds if they would help to like defeat the Turks, they would get their, their own land. They did not. And so when the Sharif of Mecca sort of backs away, the, um, the British said, you know what, if you're not going to play with us, we're going to let Abdul Aziz Ibn Saud take over Arabia, which he does. And he is Wahhabi. And Wahhabis are violent 
Salafi teaching Muslims. Every terrorist group traces itself back to Wahhabi. And it's still not a big deal, but 1924 is when the Sauds get Arabia. Well, lo and behold, that's where Mecca is. That's where the Hajj, one of the five pillars of Islam. Once in your life, you take a pilgrimage to Mecca. And, uh, but now they're coming, and instead of getting more of a moderate, ex traditional experience, they're getting infected with Wahhabism. They're going back to all around the world, infected with this, chopping off heads and so forth. And then 1938, Standard Oil Company discovers oil in Saudi Arabia. And in one generation, they go from the poorest Muslim country to the richest. They become a magnet for fundamentalism. And then Saudi Arabia ends up spending billions of dollars spreading Wahhabism. Wow. And um, let me interrupt for just a second and say that uh, we're going to take a break in just under 12 minutes. But uh, you can call and ask Bill a question at 719-619-2341. We have all open lines. I'm sure people are just listening to all of this. This is a lot of information. But if you would like to ask a question, make a comment about the things that are happening, that's 719-619-2341. So just simplify that, uh, in a sense, this whole thing about Israel just coming in and taking over Palestine against these people's will and being an occupying force. Is that accurate or not? No, it was all Turkey. It was all the Ottoman Turkish Empire. And then Britain carves out a land called Iraq, and Winston Churchill takes Fazl and makes him the king of Iraq, a created country, very similar to creating, you know, Bulgaria and Albania and, and Romania after World War, you know, one. And, um, uh, and so then you had uh, an interesting dynamic. So uh, when the Ottoman Empire was finally disbanded, it was a blow to the gut to the Islamic world, very similar to when the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. The Japanese felt like not just did their emperor let them down, but their religion let them down. And so they were like open to being westernized. And so you look at the, the former Ottoman Empire, you had Ataturk of Turkey, and he wanted to secularize his country. He outlawed the fezes and the burqas and the, the calls to prayer. He outlawed the Arabic language. He says the, the Turks were a great country before Arab came in. He says, Mohammedism is nothing more than Arab politics. It may have suited tribes in the desert. It's no good for a modern progressive state. Mm -hmm. He's the first one to educate women. Ataturk um, moved the weekend from Friday to Saturday and Sunday. He wanted to westernize. You see pictures of him. He's dressed in business suits. Looks like a Hollywood actor with the handkerchief. And, and then you have uh, in uh, Iran, you have the Shah of Iran. He loved America. And you go to Egypt, Gamal Nasser, he dressed in business suits. In 1958, Nasser met with, he speaking at a political event, and he says, I met with the head of the Muslim Brotherhood, and you know what he said? He said, he wants me to put a burqa on every woman in Egypt. And I said, sir, you can't even, your daughter's in the School of Medicine. She's not wearing one. You can't put a burqa on your own daughter. You want me to put one on 11 million women myself? And so you um, see that the Muslim world was moving in a westernized direction. They had beauty pageants in um, Syria. Oh, man, they I've had heard that. Cairo, Egypt had... Um, Time Magazine, they're wearing uh, stylish clothes and the pictures of the beach look like Southern California and the Beach Boys, women in their swimming suits in Cairo, Egypt, and Ka Kabul, Afghanistan. There's girls in their skirts going to college. There's discos over in Iran. It's the, the world is becoming westernized, but you had this Wahhabi teaching, and this influenced the formation in 1928 of the Muslim Brotherhood, Albana and six employees of the British-run Suez Canal Company formed the Muslim Brotherhood. 
and they say the Quran is our constitution, Allah is the way, death for the sake of Allah is our highest of aspirations, right? Jihad. And they begin to have offshoots that turn into ISIS and uh, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban and the, Sal the uh, Boko Haram and the Al-Shabaab and every terrorist group you can think of, the Egyptian, you know, Islamic Jihad group. And they based their strategy on the two cities Muhammad lived in. So Muhammad was first in Mecca. He was just a religious leader. The verses he gets for his Quran are a little more peaceful. They're just religious verses. But then when he's chased out of Mecca, he goes to Medina and he transitions to a political and a military leader. And those verses are more aggressive. And so the Muslim Brotherhood says, okay, we're going to first be Meccan Muslims and infiltrate all of these Middle Eastern countries and just act like we're religious. But then when we get the signal, you become political and militant and you fight and kill. And so um, uh, now during this time, you have World War II and the, uh, the Mufti of Jerusalem uh, makes a deal with Hitler. You don't like the Jews, we don't like the Jews. And so um, he raises a Bosnian Panzer Division and Arabs to fight the Arab Legion to fight with Hitler. And um, after the war, he flees to Egypt and he makes an alliance with the Muslim Brotherhood. And then you have um, uh, what? Um, Egypt wants to take the Suez Canal and they block it off. And so in 1940s, uh, you have the French and the English and the Israelis come in and seize it. And Eisenhower tells the Jews, look, give up land for peace. Give up the canal, give the Sinai Peninsula, and you'll have peace. And the Jews are like, okay, we'll give up the Sinai Peninsula. And they don't have peace. And so then Egypt again uh, does the Six-Day War. They invade, and um, the Jews destroy their air force, and they destroy, and they, and they survive. At this time, the, the, the Muslim countries tell the the Arabs that are living in the British mandate, living there, uh, leave, will wipe these Jews out, and uh, then um, you can come back and have the land. And so they leave. Well, they, they didn't wipe the Jews out. Uh, the Jews, um, you know, from May 15th, 14th of, of 1948, they were their own country. They didn't wipe the Jews out. The Jews won. And so now you had these Arabs that had left, and instead of being assimilated into other Arab countries, because they have the same genetic Arab background, uh, America assimilates people all the time. Instead of assimilating them, they, uh, they isolate them and they call them uh, Palestinians. And so that's when the name Palestinian was first used. The Palestinian Liberation Organization was, was founded by uh, the Soviets in, uh, in Moscow. And um, so you got three different things going on here, right? You have the Islam, you have the Israel in the West, but you have the Soviets. And so the Soviets did the Cold War and they would organize ELN in Bolivia with Che Guevara to do what? Sow discord so they could take over the country. Um, they would do something called critical race theory. They would come into a country, observe all the, all the races and pit them against each other to cause division. And then in the confusion, they would seize power in a coup. And so then they started FARC in Colombia. Uh, there's pictures of Brezhnev and, and Khrushchev meeting with Castro to take over Cuba. And they did the same thing in Africa. Well, they started the PLO. The purpose of the PLO was started to sow division in the Middle East. They don't want a peace. Um, of course, the Islamic concept of peace is, is world Islam. Mm -hmm. But they don't want, they want to sow division in there. And so um, 
the Mufti of Jerusalem's nephew is Yasser Arafat. And so he is meeting with Castro and he's meeting with these communists and everything. Um, so, uh, but one of the big changes um, uh, happened with, uh, um, well, so, so you had the Six Day War in 1967 and instead of the Jews being driven out, they win and that's when they capture Jerusalem. And they, they even capture the Temple Mount and they put an Israeli flag on the top of the Dome of the Rock and they, they control it. But um, I think it was uh, the uh, uh, Moshe, Moshe Dayan tells them, take that flag down mm -hmm. and let's leave the, the Temple Mount alone. Again, another land for peace. We'll give them back the Temple Mount. Did he come up? Did he get peace? No. By the way, um, the Sharif of Mecca, whose son Abdullah was king of Jordan, his other son Fazl's king of Iraq, the Sharif of Mecca is buried on the Temple Mount. Hmm. And, and a special shrine. So there's actually a, a prophecy, I think in Isaiah, that talked about the pagan kings on the Temple Mount. And so sure enough, there, there's his, his uh, grave. But um, uh, so, so then you have the 1973 war and um, it is, um, um, so, so 1972 is when the, the Muslim Brotherhood people and their Wahhabi teaching kill the Jews in the Olympics in Munich. Remember, I don't know if people remember the Munich massacre and they're taking all these athletes that the Jews had sent to the Summer Olympics and they're like killing them. And, um, and then you had uh, Golda Meir, who was the, the only woman president of Israel and she's meeting with, with um, Nixon. And she's like, there, there is no Palestinian kingdoms in history. There, there were no Palestinian kings in history. There were no Palestinian um, uh, special language. It's, it's Arabic. There was no Palestinian, um, uh, you know, clothes or dress or food or anything. It was just Arab. So let me ask: when they when they petitioned this land and gave it to Israel, in was it 48, 49? Um, who was living there? Did they have a government, or was it like Bedouins, or what was this? Well, it was the Ottoman Empire, and then it was given to the Jews as a mandate underneath of the British. So the British were the overriding authority and they um, uh, were letting the Jews come in there. But the Ottoman Empire was gone, so there was no structure. There was no... They were defeated in the war? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, so the Ottoman Empire's gone. And so um, you had Fazl put in as the king of Iraq, and then the French took over uh, Lebanon and Syria, and then the, um, Abdullah was the king of Jordan. But in a sense, Jordan is what you would consider a Palestinian homeland. It was a land for the Arabs. It took what was given to the Jews, cut it in half, and they and land for peace, right? But they, they didn't get peace. Um, and uh, so, um, so even Golda Meir, in, in talking to Nixon, she said, she said prior to the World War I, uh, that area was called Southern Lebanon or Southern Syria um, or, or Jordan, but it was, there was no Palestine. There was no Palestinian people. So this whole thing about Israel just occupying that nation is totally a fabricated yeah, deal. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to take a break here in just one minute. Uh, I could keep talking to Bill all day long, and I guarantee you he could talk for another hour on this. That's not a problem. But we would love to have your calls, and if you would like to call and ask a question, the number is 719-619-2341. Bill, I know that sometimes this just seems overwhelming. I think I know more probably 
than the average person does about this, and yet you're saying so many things that are just totally brand new information to me. It's like overwhelming. So, so sometimes it's a little hard to get hold of. You need to advertise your products real quick. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is a DVD. It's called Islamic Conquest, Past and Present, and we also have it as a flash drive. So you can plug it in and watch a dozen different presentations on what I'm talking about. Another is the book called Who is the King in America? And it's the people. But I go through how uh, the Islamic conquest, Egypt used to be Christian, it was evangelized by Mark, Turkey used to be Christian, uh, and all this. But then when they were at the gates of Vienna, uh, the Reformation starts. And that's when the King of Spain has to let the Protestants come into existence. And anyway, but who is the king in America? It's the we, the people, and then a book on socialism. And this goes through all those Cold War tactics I was talking about. So we're going to take a break here for just 90 seconds and advertise some things. And then we'll be right back. If you'd like to call and ask a question, the number is 719-619-2341. So let's take a break and we'll be right back. With practical government, you have experts in the fields that are sharing their perspective, wisdom, and experience. It's not available anywhere else in the world. We're going to teach a Christian heritage of our American government. They're going to learn about the Founding Fathers. We're teaching the Constitution, how government operates, practical skills, and field study. No matter where you're coming from, the world needs you. Whatever God's calling you to do, you're able to do it. To learn more, visit practicalgovernmentschool.com. At Truth and Liberty Coalition, we work to unify, educate, and mobilize the body of Christ to change nations. That's why I want to encourage you to go to our website at truthandliberty.net and subscribe so that you can begin receiving regular updates uh, about our show, news items, action alerts, blog posts, and much, much more. Uh, all you have to do is go to the website, click subscribe, share your email address, and you'll begin to be equipped to stand for truth in the public square. Hi, my name is Carrie Pickett, and like many of you, I wear lots of hats. But most of all, I'm a child of God. Ever since I was young, my desire has been to share the unconditional love of God. There is nothing more rewarding to me than people changing their lives and then changing the world. That's why I'm inviting you to join me wherever you are, and let's discover together these foundational truths that will transform your life. So welcome back to Truth and Liberty Live Call-In Show. I'm Andrew Womack, and we got Dr. Bill Federer with us. And uh, man, he, it's amazing what he knows. And like I said right before the break, I think I know more about this, Bill, than the average person does, and yet it just is overwhelming when you go to sharing so much history. It's amazing how ignorant we are. And I think that this is the reason that we see so many pro-Palestinian, uh, uh, what do you call it, protest because they're sitting there thinking that, that Israel is an occupying army, that the Hamas was driven to this and that it was forced upon them. They're excusing, killing babies, beheading them and stuff. What's your take on all this? Yeah, so it's important to understand that the majority of Muslims want to be moderate and friendly. Uh, the Wahhabi teaching is the poison. Even Lawrence of Arabia said Wahhabis were a fanatical Muslim heresy. Everything was puritanical. Everything was forcibly pious. Um, now, let me just interrupt. Wahhabi to me is like a really a, uh, spicy food. <laughs> what is Wahhabi? I've never heard of it until you started. About it. It's the uh, teaching that they, so uh, the word Islam means submission to the will of Allah. A Muslim is one who has submitted to the will of Allah. 
and they think that there will be world peace when the whole world submits to the will of Allah. That's what they call peace, is just when they conquer everybody and everybody's Right, listening. when your enemies are defeated, there's nobody left to fight, there's peace. So our definition of peace is different groups getting along. Their definition of peace is, is world Islam. Mm -hmm. Now, a moderate Muslim thinks the world is going to submit to Allah later. Maybe in the distant future, maybe at the end of the world, maybe it's even figurative. And since they don't think about it that much, they just want to live their lives and they're happy to have you as a friend and a family member, right? The fundamental Muslims, they think the world is supposed to submit to Allah now. And they're really excited and they want to help make it happen. And the dilemma for the West is the nicer we show ourselves, the fundamental Muslims view that niceness as weakness and they take that as an indicator from Allah they're supposed to attack. So in Islam, they have a concept when your enemy is strong, retreat. When your enemy is weak, attack. It's sort of like Lenin, where he said, treaties are like pie crust meant to be broken. So to them, a treaty is a ceasefire for them to regroup so they can get their, their next bunch of missiles in place. We think a ceasefire is a, is a step toward peace. They look at it as a view. And um, so historically, whenever they've lost major battles, the Battle of Lepanto, the Battle of Malta, the, the Battle of Tours, they go through a period of being less uh, militant because when their enemy was strong, they retreat and they regroup for a decade, a generation, maybe even a century, and then they will do probing attacks. And when there's no resistance, then it's like, hey, Allah's given us our enemy and they will get more violent again. So they've had like 40 something attacks in, uh, on U.S. personnel in just the last month uh, in Syria and different places. Is this same type of thing? They're just probing and seeing what the yeah. response is? Yeah, so I spoke at a, a church one time when there was this young uh, uh, man and he says, I just finished my tour over in Iraq and, and I was taking my MREs, meals ready to eat, and I was giving some of that chocolate to the kids. And one kid came up and stabbed my arm with a knife. And he looks at me and says, why did he do that? And I said, you were showing weakness. I talked to somebody else and they, they said, you know, when we first went in there, we were tough and there was peace and they didn't mess with us. But then we were like giving out basketballs and giving them money and then they realized that we were, we're friendly. They viewed that as weakness. Napoleon did the same thing. When he invaded Egypt in the 1790s, at first he was tough, there was order. Um, but then when the British defeated his fleet at the Battle of the Nile, he was sort of stuck in Egypt. And so he wanted to sort of be friends with them and he started showing weaknesses. And he says, then the nicer they were, they were being ambushed in the different streets and they were being chased and they would use the mosques as their last stand, they would fight. And, and so, so weakness invites aggression. And it's the law of nature, uh, a lion chasing a zebra, the zebra is strong, uh, the lion will not bother with it. But if the zebra is limping and weak, then it can be attacked. And so when we show ourselves very nice, the fundamentalist Muslims view that niceness as weakness, and they take that as an indicator to attack. So I would suspect, uh, based on what you're saying, that that's one of the reasons that Trump didn't see these kind of things happen is because he was tough. Correct. And they see Biden as being weak. Right, right. And um, but um, so 1973 war, they attack on Yom Kippur and they, the, the Jews didn't get as clear of a victory as they did on the 67, the Six Day War. And so Jimmy Carter has the Camp David Accords with Menachem Begin, the Prime Minister of Israel, and Anwar Sadat, the President of Egypt. Both Amor Sadat and Menachem Begin get the Nobel Peace Prize for participating. And this was the beginning of the land for peace process. Mm -hmm. And so the Jews had taken the Sinai Peninsula 
And what was the first thing they gave up? They gave up the Sinai Peninsula, land for peace. And they were giving up land. And so Menachem Begin is treated as a hero in the Western world. He was genuinely a really nice guy. Presidents Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford and all these presidents are meeting with him. Billy Graham meets with him. Uh, Pat Robertson actually gave him an award, right? Because he has made this treaty to, to have peace with, with Israel. And um, so, Mena so Anwar Sadat is having a parade with his military in 1973-81. And the military is going past the, uh, the bandstands. And there's Anwar Sadat and Mubarak, his vice president, and they're watching the military. And all of a sudden, the troops stop. They turn. They face the bandstands. They, they low level their machine guns, and they start spraying. And they empty their guns in Anwar Sadat and kill him. And then Mubarak's wounded, and he, he falls off, and he ends up... Man, going I didn't realize that. I was aware of all of those names, but I didn't know that. So, so what happened was the Muslim Brotherhood and their, you know, Egyptian Islamic Jihad group, and they infiltrated the military. Sort of like we've seen infiltration in our military, and infiltration in our country, infiltration. They would do the Meccan phase, where they would come in and just, just were just religious, but then they got the signal, and then they would, they killed him. And so these moderate leaders in the Middle East now had to do this balancing act, where they wanted to be pro-West. They wanted to be pro, but if they got too pro-American, these Muslim Brotherhood people would assassinate them. And so the Muslim Brotherhood begins to um, in, uh, spread, to start more groups. And um, you still have the Soviets in the picture, the Cold War. And so we have uh, sort of a three-way chess game. You have the uh, Soviet-Afghan War, 1979. And you have um, the United States doing the largest covert CIA operation. Covert means that Nobody in America knows that the CIA is doing this, but they're doing it anyway. I know it's hard for us to imagine that the CIA would do stuff that we wouldn't know about. And so it's uh, the, the CIA train and arm the Taliban to fight the Soviets. It was so big of a deal that Sylvester Stallone did a movie on it called Rambo 3. And Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts did a movie on it called Charlie Wilson's War. This is the United States arming and training the Taliban. And who was one of the Mujahideen fighters for the Taliban that we were arming and training? It was Osama bin Laden. And, um, and so the thought that the Taliban could surprise us and take Afghanistan, nobody believes that. We were arming and training them, right? And so uh, I actually talked to my, uh, my Uber driver, I was in Phoenix, and he goes, uh, I'm driving an Uber, but I'm a Black Hawk helicopter pilot. I got my wings. He says, I was trained by the Americans, and I, uh, I worked with the Americans against the Taliban. And he says, we could have stopped the Taliban so easily. We had Javelin missiles. We had everything. They had 1,000 people, and they had motorcycles. And he says, but we got the order to stand down. He says, my friends landed their helicopters in Tajikistan, because they knew if they landed in Afghanistan, they'd be killed. He said, I had to hide for my life for 10 days, and he finally contacted his trainer in America that helped get him out. And he said that they were saying, oh, they didn't want, you know, foreigners in Afghanistan. He goes, now China runs Afghanistan. That, that, that they saw Chinese planes flying in the same time we were evacuating people out. Why? Because China wants access to Afghans, lithium and rare earth minerals for batteries, um, the metals. Wow. And um, so basically Biden gave Afghanistan to uh, China. And then the Taliban gets $80 billion worth of weapons 
And uh, these weapons, there's uh, thought that they are finding their way to Hamas to be used against Israel. Man, this is really disturbing, but I tell you, the truth will set you free. We need to know it. Let's go to the phones. We got some people waiting, and I know that uh, Bill could just talk forever and explain things, but let's go to Robert from Florida. He called in, and so, Robert, you're on Truth and Liberty Live with Andrew and Bill Federer. Hey, hi, Bill and uh, Andrew. How are you today? We are Good. blessed. Okay, so I was just reading my Bible, and I run into Psalm 83, and there seems to be a distinction between uh, a designated Persia and an Elam. But you don't find Elam in Ezekiel 38, but you do in, in Jeremiah 49, 29, 39. And that's tied to the Psalm 83 uh, encounter that it, it's describing. Uh, they're two separate locations. Um, are they two separate um it's like a double jeopardy against Iran. Is it coming from Israel against them? I'm not sure I understood that. Do you, you get it? Um, I mean, I do know that the Elamites were a smaller kingdom, and then they turned into Persia, which was the bigger kingdom. And the Persians had Cyrus, who loved, was friends with the Jews, yep. and let the Jews go back and rebuild. And there is a strong... Um, so after World War II... There was a leader in Iran named Mazadegh, and he was beginning to side with the Soviet Union, and he nationalizes all the oil in Iran. And you think, oh, big deal. It was like, wait a second, Britain has no oil. And Britain has the Anglo-Iranian oil company called BP. And so Britain has this global navy, and they're having their oil cut off. So they go to Eisenhower. Eisenhower approves the first CIA operation to overthrow a country's leader. It's called Operation Ajax. And they, Kermit Roosevelt Jr. is the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. He's the organizer on the ground, and he does the critical race theory in reverse. So he uh, recruits mobsters and gangsters and radical imams, and they stage protests and riots against Mazadek. And when his public opinion falls, they do a coup. They lock him away for the rest of his life where he dies, and they replaced him with the Shah. And the Shah loved America. He was pro-American. I went to college with an Iranian student who had an American flag on his dorm room wall. I hate to admit, in college, I did not have an American flag on my dorm room wall. And, um, and so they were pro-American until 1979, Jimmy Carter abandoned our ally, the Shah, and he let the Ayatollah take over Iran. And the Ayatollah is so fundamental. He's influenced by the Wahhabis. He's influenced by Saeed Khatoub, who's the Muslim Brotherhood guy. Um, the, the Ayatollah uh, insists that the Quran be in Arabic, yet everybody in Iran speaks Farsi. So the people in Iran view the Ayatollah as this dictator who's taking away their freedoms. And they want the women were protesting. They want to just wear Western clothes, and this Ayatollah is cracking down. And the people of Iran would have thrown the Ayatollah out had not, you know, Biden and Obama keep funding him, keep sending him billions of dollars and taking off. So when, when the first thing Biden did when he was in office was to uh, cut off our, our gas pipelines in Canada and Alaska, so that meant that we had to buy oil from And we had Iran. been energy independent under Trump, right? Yeah, and so basically Biden has been giving $40 billion a year to Iran by taking off these oil sanctions, plus all the other billions they give, and it's propping up this Ayatollah regime that the people don't want. And, uh, and so there's a revival of Christianity taking place among the people, but the, the Quran is in Arabic, and he does not allow it to be in Farsi. 
And so the Ayatollahs found Hezbollah in Lebanon. And so what happens with the Lebanon is 1981, they blow up a U.S. Marine barracks, killing 241 U.S. Marines. Reagan, I loved him, but his response was to pull America out. And so we are projecting weakness. And so this is an encouragement to the fundamental Muslims. And so Jimmy Carter abandons our ally, the Shah, and Reagan abandons Lebanon. And then you have, um, uh, now I, I do want to point out that um, after Jimmy Carter lets the Ayatollah take over Iran, you have Iraq. And Iran and Iraq enter into a war from 1980 to 1988. Millions die. It's a big war. And Ronald Reagan and Donald Rumsfeld are arming and training Saddam Hussein to fight the Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran. That's, that's amazing. And so the Saddam was our ally in the whole Arab world until uh, Bush decided to, to switch and, and come against him. And um, uh, but then when George W. went into Iraq and normally war history, you replace the king with another king, but you keep the whole structure in place. The goal is to what? Is to get tax revenue from the conquered kingdom. So you don't want to disrupt everything. Even in the Bible, you would have, um, you know, uh, King Josiah dies, Egypt comes in, conquers Jerusalem. What does it do? It simply gets rid of, you know, the one Jehoiakim and replaces him with the brother Jehoiakim, you know, but he has to pay this tribute. So, so you don't dismantle the entire structure. The Romans did that. They would come in and say, okay, we'll put in a new king, just pay us. When, when, um, uh, George W. went into Iraq and he totally dis dis takes apart the entire government, the entire military. Out of that chaos came ISIS, the Islamic State of Syria and Iraq. There would have been no ISIS had we not told. It, it went against any common sense military um, uh, uh, strategy. And, it's amazing. And then you have um, uh, Bill Clinton with the uh, Bosnian War. So uh, he was having his Monica Lewinsky scandal and he decides to do Operation Deliberate Force. And he is funneling arms through Iran to the Bosnian Muslims to use against the Serbian Christians. And uh, after it gets, uh, Kosovo gets free, they, they have a statue to Bill Clinton in the capital city there in Kosovo. Cause he, and uh, a movie came out with um, uh, Dustin Hoffman uh, and Robert De Niro called Wag the Dog. And it was, lo and behold, it was on a president running for re-election in a sexual scandal, and he creates an artificial war in Albania, which happens to border Serbia. Um, but it, it was like, okay, you know, was this a distraction? Um, but uh, but he, the fact is he was funneling arms through. So if America, it, it got so bad that um, when Obama was in, uh, that we were gun running. We were taking arms from um, Libya, Hillary Clinton, and running the guns over to Syria to take out Assad. And Assad was a, was a secular leader. He was an Alawite, which is so secular that even the fundamental Muslims don't even call that Muslim. And, um, but uh, they wanted to get rid of him. And um, the, uh, what? Um, and so you, you see that there are different agendas taking place. There's this globalist agenda that wants there to be international crises so they can do their great reset. And um, 
but uh, and, and so Obama was funneling guns to the terrorists so much so that the, the Los Angeles Times had a headline. Um, Syrian terrorist groups armed by the CIA are fighting uh, Syrian terrorist groups armed by the Pentagon. And even Tulsi Gabbard uh, introduces a bill in 2016, Stop Arming Terrorist Act. <laughs> and then Trump gets in and Time Magazine has a headline and it, it was Trump ends covert plan of arming these Syrian terrorists. And he's like, okay, none of, stop this uh, arming the bad guys type thing. And, and then the Christian minorities get crushed in the middle. And even John Kerry had to admit that under Obama, there was a genocide of the Iraqi Christians that was wow. taking place. So um, you have this little country with 9 million Jews surrounded by 400 million Muslims. And, um, uh, and a lot of them would be happy to co get along, but you have the Muslim Brotherhood uh, doing assassinations on leaders if they don't. But lo and behold, Palestine, um, now that we're calling that one area that name, um, the Hamas, is a, a Muslim Brotherhood Salafi violent group. And um, there was a, a gentleman named um, uh, Mossab Hassan Youssef, and his father started Hamas in 1985. And um, this young Youssef saw how uh, they were torturing Palestinians that they thought were working together with the Jews. And they, uh, he saw these, and he knew these people, and he knew they weren't working with the Jews, and he saw the Hamas torturing them and killing them. And he goes, if they're doing this to their own people now before they get in control, what are they going to do once they get in? And so this young Yusef from 1997 to 2007, he um, tips the Jews off whenever Hamas is about to do one of their terrorist attacks. And he does it for 10 years, and then he finally, he even talks about how he, he stopped believing in, in Islam and he stopped believing in all faiths, but then he started becoming a Christian. He says it took about six years, but then he converted and became a Christian. And then he escaped from Palestine and he came over to America. And when Obama found out about it, Obama wanted to send him back over there where he would get killed. And then there was, a, he wrote a book and then they had a lawsuit. He had finally won the lawsuit, so he was able to stay in America. But he did a CBN interview. You can find it on YouTube. Right. And, and so he said, look, I, I was raised with Hamas. They are a terrorist organization. The Palestinians don't want them. They're using hospitals as their base of operations. Mm -hmm. They won't let Palestinians leave because they want to have them be killed uh, because they want to be able to get the headlines that says the Jews kill Palestinians. I heard one Palestinian say that he hoped that Israel would invade because Hamas was just destroying that area. And so he was he was praying for that. Yeah. It's, so, it's tough on them. Yeah, they, uh, they, they would hang the kids up on a fence so that, the, you know, so that if the, by their collars, you know, they'd stick them over the, the, the fence. And so if the, if the Jews fired at them, and, but they would be shooting from between them and they have no value for human life. And um, so, uh, so. Well, let's, let's, uh, I know you can talk forever, Bill. I hate to interrupt you because I'm really interested, but we do need to take a couple of calls here. Let's go to Gladys. She's calling from Georgia and you're an AWM uh, partner and also Truth and Li Liberty partner. So Gladys, welcome to Truth and Liberty with live, live call in with Andrew and Bill. Yes, good evening, brother. Andrew, how are you? I'm blessed. How are you, Dr. Bill? Good, good. Great to get your call. All right. 
Brother Andrew, I will be at the conference and also at the Solid Church. Is there a protocol to come up to you just to say thank you? Well, I'm there usually an hour before every service, and at the church I'll probably be before and after every service. But uh, at my conference, uh, after at the night service, I do leave immediately afterwards because I've had people keep me up till two and three in the morning. I just can't do that every night. But I'll be there before the service if you want to get there early. Okay. Okay, thank you. All right, Dr. Bill, do you see an, an end to this problem between the Arabs and the Jews anytime? <laughs> um, if if the, the West stopped financing the terrorists and providing the terrorists with arms, and if the West made it clear that they stand with Israel, uh, Israel just wants to have their land and exist. Um, the fundamental Muslims, they want uh, to conquer the world. Um, and I'd say their first priority is to eliminate the Jews. Yeah, and, and if they did do that, the, instead of there being world peace, you would see world jihad because the, the, the ones that think, oh, it's going to happen in the future, it's going to happen in the future. If, if Israel fell, they would say, it's really happening now, and you would see lots and lots of them becoming fundamentalists. And you know, all of these people who are doing the pro-Palestinian protest and stuff, and many of them are homosexuals, many of them are women's libbers stuff, and, and the uh, Hamas would kill all of them if they could. Is they it don't interesting, um, what they're doing. I, I don't know if it was, I think it was on the thelibertydaily.com, but they had a link to a, a, a video of a, a Chris, and he's, Billboard Chris is his nickname, but he is standing up for um, stopping the sexual mutilation of children, mm -hmm. that children cannot give consent to having their bodies sexually mutilated uh, by doctors. They're children, they cannot give consent. And so there was a, uh, a liberal students wearing their masks, and they're out there with a pro-Palestinian, and he's talking to them, and, and they're like, well, you're, you're causing these kids to commit suicide. And, and he's like, no, every study shows that it's the trans teaching that causes them to commit yeah, suicide. And, and then some, some Arab girls come up, and, and they said, what are you talking about? And he says, they won't let them uh, do the trans surgeries. And these, these Arab girls are like, no, 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 no trans surgeries. Uh, LGBT is all bad. And the, no religion of Abraham has LGBT. All the, and, and they're like yelling at this liberal student and it's so much that, that he just turns and walks away. And um, so, yeah, uh, these students that are entering in, they, they really don't have a clue. They would be killed if they weren't wearing the full garb, burkas and things like that. All, uh, all transgender, all homosexuals would be killed by the Muslims. And yet here they are standing up and thinking that somehow or another they're supporting them. It's just people don't know what they're doing. They don't know but, I, I, but Jesus will bring peace. And, uh, but I do think, you know, it says uh, one of the prophecies that God will put a hook in the jaw and, you know, bring people to, to down to Israel. And it's like, here's this little bitty country. It, it takes a jet like less than a minute to say it's to, to, to go across the country, uh, you know, vertically or, or horizontally. And I mean, it's so small, um, but yet it's the center of the world politics. And, and I can't help but think that the Jews are... Uh, God's chosen people all the way back to Abraham Absolutely. and that the devil hates God and the devil hates God's uh, chosen people. And, um, 
there was the what's called um, replacement theology that came along with St. Augustine in the fourth century and the Jews had been scattered for four centuries. And this was obviously, you know, what, maybe um, 1600 years or so before they came back again. And so it was like, okay, what do we do with these prophecies that are addressed to Israel and there's no Israel. And so that's when the, the thought was, well, the church now replaces Israel. And there are the promises that do go to the church, but it doesn't take away the promises to Israel. Uh, the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. And so the, the miracle of you taking this, this land that has been gone, given back to the Jewish people, they brought back a dead language. Here's Hebrew. And they, they, they brought it back and to become speaking. There's so many miracles and um, that even the Jews themselves don't even see, see that a lot of them don't even see that there's miracles of their very existence. Um, but uh, and I think that God will uh, he, he makes it clear, but he doesn't make it so clear that it doesn't take faith because without faith, it's yeah. impossible to please God. Well, one of the ways that the Lord is going to bring peace is that when this final battle comes, it says that the blood will be up to the horse's bridles, three to four feet high for 20 miles or something like that. And so it's not going to be peace like just forgive everybody. He's going to conquer his enemies and all these people that come against him. So I tell you, people are, they have emasculated the truth, uh, people. And they, you know, in the end times, the people are going to be rejoicing when they see God overcome his enemies and the Christians are going to be rejoicing. And now there's Christians that don't rejoice over anything, but I, it still blesses me when I say good conquer evil. I like it. Man, if I was president, which I'm not, thank God I'm not, but I would tell Israel, man, go for it. Wipe out Hamas, Hezbollah, and while you're at it, take out all of Iran's nuclear uh, powers. That's what I Anyway, we're going to take a break. Hopefully we still have somebody stick with us after the things that I've said, but we're going to take a 90 second break. We've still got some lines open and uh, I'd encourage you to call if you have any question or comment about the things we're talking about. The number is 719-619-2341. So let's take a 90 second break and then we'll be right back. Andrew has many conferences and seminars around the globe each year. For the latest information on Andrew's complete speaking schedule, visit our website at awmi.net slash events. You were created with a purpose. Written in the heart of God. Long before you were born, he is calling you to find it. We want to help you experience His unconditional love to be equipped and empowered to become a world changer. Hey, you know, a big part of what we do here at Truth and Liberty is to provide you with the resources that you need in order to stand for truth in the public square. So I want to remind everybody to go to our website and check out our resources page at truthandliberty.net slash resources, where you can find material that discusses just about every issue we're facing today in our culture. And these are things that are prepared by our strategic partners and some of the uh, most influential and important organizations in America today. So welcome back to Truth and Liberty Live Call-In Show. I'm Andrew Womack. We've got Dr. Bill Federer with us. And man, I tell you, this guy's amazing. It's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to get many questions in because, man, you get him started, he, he just can't stop. 
It's amazing what he knows, but I've really enjoyed it. He's sharing some things that hopefully will be a real blessing. Real quickly, would you advertise your product? Sure. Um, You've got uh, a lot of here's stuff. Here's a DVD called Islamic Conquest, Past and Present, and it's uh, five half-hour TV shows of me going through the history of Islam. Um, and then a, a book called Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present. And then uh, the book, Who is the King in America? And it's uh, You, the People, are the King. Uh, my website's AmericanMinute.com, and I send out a, a history email that they can sign up for. You know, one of the things that's interesting is uh, Muhammad was born in 570 A.D. His father dies before he's born. His mother dies when he's six. His grandfather and guardian dies when he's eight. He's orphaned, taken in by an uncle, Abu Talib, who's a merchant who takes him on camel rides to different cities. He hears about different religions. The Zoroastrians in Persia believed that paradise was filled full of virgins that would fulfill all the guy's desires. And, uh, and they had jinns or genies, and so some of that stuff is reflected in Islam. There is the pagan. So in Arabia, they had hundreds of different gods, and uh, one of them was Hubal, the moon god. And their calendar began with the first sight of the crescent moon over the desert. And so they had a rock they thought had fallen from the moon. It's a glass impact rock. Meteor hit the desert sands, and, and so they would kiss the rock, walk around the rock, bow to this rock, and these pagans did this for hundreds of years pre-Muhammad, and it got incorporated into Islam. Uh, the Jewish faith, Muhammad originally had his followers bowing toward Jerusalem, but then when the Jews rejected him, he changed the direction. And even Encyclopedia Britannica says the gospel was made known to Muhammad through apocryphal and heretical sources. So he thought the Trinity was the Father, Mary, and Jesus. And um, so uh, he could not read, um, the uh, Quran, the word means recitation. And so uh, he's 25 years old. He marries a wealthy widow named Khadija, um, who he was working for. Now he has time. He goes to caves and prays, which is what the Christians were doing. And the, this movement called pietism is their version of separation of church and state. But in the fourth century, fifth century, uh, these Christians would get so excited that they had a personal relationship with Jesus, they would sell their property and live in a cave as a hermit the rest of their life. Or, and so Muhammad goes out to this cave and prays, and a spirit squeezed him and commanded him to read. He said, I cannot read. Spirit squeezed him a second time, said, read. He said, I cannot read. Happened a third time, and then he began to recite. And so that's how we would get these verses. Um, he thought he was demon-possessed. He went to his wife, and um, uh, she takes him to an uncle who was a, uh, one of these heretical Christian sects and says maybe that was the spirit that appeared to Moses. And, and then he dies, and so Muhammad is with this spirit. And then he um, uh, goes into Mecca, and he uh, begins sharing his faith. And he only makes 70 converts in 12 years. And he gets a little confrontational. And so the people of Mecca chase him out of town, 619 A.D. He tries going to Al-Taif. They don't want him. They pelt him with rocks and stones. Finally, in 622, he goes to Medina, which was a Jewish city. The Jews are nice. They let him in as a Muslim immigrant. And uh, he goes into the minority neighborhoods, and he begins to organize a following. And when his following gets big enough, he goes to the Jewish leaders and pressures them to accommodate him and his followers with a treaty. Now he's a political leader. When his followers in Mecca get chased out of town, he allows them to rob the caravans headed back to Mecca. He becomes a military leader. One and of this the is one of the reasons that uh, it's attractive to people because they get they could take the spoil, they could go rape the women, they could claim them. It was it really fed their flesh. Muhammad got a verse from his Allah saying, "Allah has given you the slave girls as your booty." He told his followers they could have four wives plus as many extra women as their right hand possesses. This is a strong motivator to some men. And, and um, so he uh, uh, 
the Meccans send a thousand soldiers to Medina to stop Muhammad from robbing the caravans. Muhammad defeats them with 300. He's out number three to one. Muhammad wins. It's the Battle of Badra around 624 AD. And um, he takes this as a confirmation he's supposed to be a military leader. He fights in 66 battles and raids in the next eight years before he dies. He even used the catapult when he attacked the city called Al-Taif. And when they told him that the catapult was hurling these rocks that were smashing and killing innocent women and children, Muhammad's response was, they are among them. So they got to be killed too. And so the idea of it's okay to kill innocent women to advance Islam, because Muhammad did. And he's the perfect Muslim. His life is the Sunnah, the way, the example. Um, he, uh, uh, within five years of him coming into the Jewish city of Medina, there is not a Jew left in the city of Medina. They were chased out, killed, or enslaved. Within five years of Muhammad's death, every pre-existing culture in Arabia is wiped out. Within the next 50 years, the Muslims conquered Jerusalem, which had been a Byzantine Christian city for three centuries since Constantine. The Muslims conquered Syria, which was completely Christian, evangelized by the Apostle Paul. The name Christian was first used in Syria. Hmm. They conquered into Armenia, which was Christian. They conquered Egypt, which was completely Christian. Egypt was evangelized by Mark that wrote the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then they conquered North Africa. There was 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa. St. Augustine of Hippo was from Carthage. It was all Christian. But the Christians had taught themselves pietism, they're not going to get involved, and so there's some. And then in the year 711, they invade Spain, and they have a military advantage of a stirrup and scimitar sword. The Europeans are fighting on foot. Ten years, they conquer all of Spain. They're stopped outside of Paris at the Battle of Tours in 732 A.D., just 100 years after the death of Muhammad in 632 A.D. From the, Muhammad dies in 632 A.D. By 732 A.D., they're outside of Paris? And you read their writings, they'll say, well, we were just defensive. It was a defensive warfare. It's like, how can it be defensive when you're on a whole other continent? And so they have this concept that if you feel threatened, it's okay to attack. And, um, and one of the other concepts is um, that it's okay to lie if you feel threatened. It's called takia, sacred lying, holy deceit. And, um, and so it took 700 years to drive them out of Spain. And then the Turks convert to Islam. Now, before the Turks convert, you have about two centuries of the Muslims having conquered, and then they're sort of consolidating. And again, they did not force the Christian minorities to convert because it was the non-Muslims that paid the taxes. You just had to ransom your life once a year, and they let you alone. And um, so this was called the Islamic Golden Age. And you had the Syrian Christians translating the Greek classics from Greek into Syrian into Arabic. And so you had Arab Muslim scholars studying Greek stuff, Greek astronomy, G Greek geometry, uh, Greek art, Greek literature, Greek music. One was Avicenna, another was Al-Farabi, another was um, Averroes. And they were experts on Aristotle. And you would have, if you would have taken a snapshot, you would have thought the Muslim world was about to experience the Renaissance, the rediscovery of all this Greek stuff. But it all got slapped down by a guy named Ghazali. And he was a mujahideen, a renewer of the faith. He's considered the second most important Muslim after Muhammad. And he forbade studying anything except the Quran. And he said, uh, one must uh, stop anyone from studying Greek geometry 
because even though it's not among the philosopher's sciences, the, the student might be pulled into studying Greek philosophy and then get pulled away from Islam, and so don't even study geometry. It was a closing of the Islamic mind with Ghazali. Meantime, Europe has Thomas Aquinas, and he uh, has this thing called scholasticism, and it's okay to read Greek stuff. You just eat the hay, spit out the sticks, right? I mean, even a pagan can stumble across truth, and so you can keep them. And so this opened up the Western European mind to Greek stuff. They started universities in Boulogne and, and all these different cities. And then when the Muslims conquered Turkey, all seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation were conquered by the Turks. The Greek scholars fled west with their Greek art, their Greek architecture, their Greek literature, and their Greek scriptures. And so this flood of Greek stuff into Europe, we call the Renaissance, and the studying of the Greek scriptures turned into the Reformation with Martin Luther. And um, uh, anyway, um, the, uh, the Muslim world continued to conquer. Uh, they were stopped, the Battle of Vienna uh, in 1529, and then they were stopped at the Battle of Vienna again in 1683. And so that was, 1683 is the beginning of the end of the Ottoman Empire. And so from that battle on, which happened to be on September 11th, 1683, the Ottoman Empire begins to shrink, 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 until after World War I is disbanded. And then the Muslim world viewed, oh, our, our great Islamic kingdom is gone. And that's where you have all these leaders wanting to become westernized. And if left alone, it would have been a nice situation. But you had the Wahhabi teaching from Saudi Arabia, from the uh, oil being discovered by Standard Oil Company in 1938 and spreading billions of dollars worth of money going into spreading Wahhabism. The Wahhabis teaching called Salafi influenced the formation of the Muslim Brotherhood in 1928. And then the Muslim Brotherhood influenced all of these other groups, ISIS, um, which uh, was formed after Bush destroyed the, the infrastructure there in Iraq. Um, uh, the Taliban, um, it, is, it influenced um, one of the Taliban Mujahideen was Osama bin Laden, and he forms uh, Al-Qaeda. Um, and so you have all these groups, but they all go back to the Muslim Brotherhood, and they all go back to Wahhabi, which all goes back to Saudi Arabia um, and, uh, and the British standing back and, and letting the moderate Muslim Sharif of Mecca uh, be kicked out. Well, very, very interesting. I hate to cut him off, but I would like to take some more calls. All right. So let's go to Aaron. He's calling from Colorado. He's a partner and a CBC student. So Aaron, you're on with Andrew and Bill. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hello. Hi. You okay? Yep, yes. we can hear you. Okay. So my question, I want to go back to what Bill was talking about in Afghanistan and the whatever word you want to fill in for what that was. And with our American uniforms, our American equipment, armament, do you believe that that could make its way into our country, into the homeland here, and that they could then use it to create chaos within the country in which then martial law would have to be declared to, to stop the chaos? And then secondly, what do you believe the church's role is in this process in community and how to insulate or protect themselves from what's to come. Uh, I do think that there's a good chance that the weapons left in Afghanistan have found their way to Hamas uh, and are using against Israel. I've, even Marjorie Taylor um, Green, Green uh, was thinking along those lines. And um, uh, 
And then another piece of the puzzle, sort of interesting, is the uh, money that is going to Ukraine. There's a neo-Nazi group called Azov, um, A-Z-O-V, and Biden and uh, Obama have been sending their money. They're the Ukrainian version of Antifa and BLM. So any, in America, Antifa is this group that does what? Riots. And so the Azov is wanting to heighten the controversy over there, the tensions with more violence, because they actually won a World War III so they can do their Great Reset. Um, but a lot of the weapons going to Ukraine, there's uh, thought that those are also, because a lot of the Azov people are Muslims um, and they're violent and they uh, could possibly be funneling those arms to Hamas. So I believe that anytime you have billions of dollars going someplace from the government, it's not being overseen properly, and there's people that'll take advantage of it, sell it to the highest bidder, stuff like that. So. Well, one, one of the other interesting things, um, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State and we were given money to Ukraine, Ukraine's the poorest country in all of Europe. But guess what the number one country giving money to the Clinton Foundation was? Ukraine. What are they? They're the poorest country. They're giving the most amount of money. The Clinton Foundation finance money laundering. Oh, so whenever so you see billions of dollars going to third world countries, the corrupt leader gets to keep a part of it. And a lot of it gets funneled right back to the politicians. And so even Zelensky, after he gets billions of dollars in aid, he gives it to BlackRock for um, safekeeping. Well, BlackRock, Larry Fink, this is a one world government, world economic forum group. And so here's the U.S. aid going, you're going to go into the, uh, right? And so um, uh, Lord Acton uh, was a British statesman. He said, official truth is not actual truth. But um, so I do think that there are, for the last 20 years, fundamentalist Muslims infiltrating drug gangs in Latin and South America. There's a Hezbollah chapter in Venezuela. And so they've been infiltrating these drug gangs. There's Muslim enclaves in Panama and these different countries in Latin America uh, coming with money. And so they're coming across the southern border. And anybody that does some research can see that there's Pakistanis coming across and Somalis and uh, all these different Middle Easterners coming across the southern border and, and lots of Chinese with money. So they're not like looking for another opportunity. And so, uh, and, and um, Mayorkas has helped cut the, the Darien, Dorian Gap in Panama in half. It's the most dangerous terrain. They've never been able to build a highway there. They gotta climb up all these rocks and, and there's um, dangerous. And so he cut it in half so there's a river and there's boats now that take them so they can, and, and then they have like a, like a mall where they stop and they get kits and they get all kinds of stuff. So here's our government, our Mayorkas helping to, and then they give them an app. So all you gotta do is put this little app and then you come to the border and show them the app. And it's like anybody can fill it out. And then they say, well, we'll schedule a hearing in seven years in the future. And then they're busing these people and ship flying them all around the country. And anybody can see that, that there's something going on. You know, the world uh, globalists, they divided the world into 10 groups. And they have one of the groups is North America, Canada, America, and Latin South America. And so, so in their mind, they want to get rid of the border. And we're like, why aren't they stopping them? Why aren't they stopping? Well, they're, they're doing their agenda. And they just hire uh, employees that can lie at the conference hearings with a straight face. Yeah, let me ask a question that, you know, all of these things you're talking about, it just seems so complex. There's so much stuff going on. I don't think any one person or one group can orchestrate this. I think it has to be demonic that, that these people, the thing that they have in common is that they hate God 
They hate our God, the true God. And I believe it's all demonic inspired. You know, um, Nimrod, which means uh, rebel, Nimrod built the, built the Tower of Babel. That was the first attempt at a one world government. Right, the population of the world was over in, in Mesopotamia, Tigris and Euphrates rivers, plains of Shinar. The Bible says it was, the population of the world started over there. They, Noah's Ark landed there in, in Mount Ararat and they came down the Tigris and Euphrates river valley. But even secular uh, anthropologists say that's where civilization uh, most likely began. And, um, and so this Tower of Babel was, was an attempt. Josephus, the Jewish commentator, said Nimrod wanted to build the tower so high that if God destroyed the world again with a flood, he could survive on top. And he made everybody bake, bake bricks and bring them or he would kill them. So defiant against God, oppressive over man, God comes down, confuses the languages, and the people scatter into language groups that turn into nations. Nations were God's invention to prevent a one world government. You take the population of the world and, and you break them into different language groups and they're all competing with each other. They're going to keep, nobody's going to be able to conquer. And, and so every generation has a king that wants to conquer other nations and left unchecked, if he didn't die, he'd have been happy to, to make himself the Antichrist. Every generation, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, any one of them would have been happy to kill and conquer the world. And so that spirit of Antichrist is there. And um, anybody that can do plotting sees that at some point it's going to max out on a global level. And that sin of Adam and Eve sinning and Cain killing Abel, if God would have stopped it right there, you know, people or the angels could say, well, God, you were unjust. You, you judged them before. How did you know that they were going to sin? God's like, okay, we're going to let this play out for 6,000 years. And it's like Texas, you can have grass and then there's sticker grass. And if you keep it mowed, you can't tell the difference. But if you let it grow, the sticker grass comes up with these balls of these stickers. And if you step on them with a barefoot, it fits it, really hard. And so God's like, I'm going to let this wicked sin of Adam and Eve play itself out. And it's going to be this ugly antichrist. And everybody's going to say, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord, kill that thing. Right. And God will say, okay, you know, you had the, and then some people will say, well, God, maybe you're a little tough. And so after a thousand years, he lets the devil out of the bottomless pit. And what does the devil do? He, try, he does the same thing all over again. He tries to get people to, to go against the, the Lord. And so God is like showing, hey, I'm giving him all, all the, the chance. But he's, he's, Jesus said he's a murderer from the beginning. So let me ask you that question again. Is it, is it demonic orchestrating all of these different people together or is it just the sin nature playing out? Um, there, there's different levels. Um, to some, it's just the natural uh, globalists wanting a monopoly um, for is business that inspired purposes. inspired by the devil? Um, there's uh, a certain percentage of it, but underneath, I think, it, yes, it's greed. It's, it's selfishness. But at the very, very top, I think it is demonic. I think that there are players there that, um, you know, we don't maybe know their names, but I think the, the closer you get to the globalist top, I mean, even um, George Soros, when they asked him, they said, you know, he would buy currencies in countries and make the price of the currency go up and they would dump it and the currency would collapse and he'd make a lot of money off it. And the interview was on 60 Minutes. They said, don't you feel bad about it? He goes, no, it's just business. And they said, well, these are people that are losing their jobs and losing their life savings. And he says, and he says, don't you feel, um, you know, there's laws against this. He goes, oh, that's why I set up my business out of the, you know, the Caribbean. So I'm not under any country. And they said, well, don't you feel an accountability to God? He goes, I don't believe in God. And so to him, it's just a power grab. 
And um, wasn't it Lenin that said something like that? There has to be people that know what they're doing, but then there's a whole bunch of useful idiots that just fall in line. Behind. Yeah, for most people, it's as simple as I want to keep my job, and they're like, okay, you've got to, you've got to do some in injecting, you know, you got to do, you know, some that would let us track you. I mean, they're like, okay, I got to keep my job, and it's going to be an individual little. Instead of, I'm convinced some people are going to take the mark of the beast because they're going to say, how can I survive unless I surrender to the government? But th that's it's one like of the... taking a vaccine. Then yeah. I'm going to lose my job if I don't take this vaccine. We've already seen that play out. Yeah, and, and it's, um, I was thinking of, of giving. Why did God put it in the Bible for us to be charitable and give? It makes no sense whatsoever. You need money to live. Why would you give it away? When you give away and you see God be faithful and multiply your funds, you realize, hey, I'm not dependent on the world system. And so when the government says, you've got to take this mark of the beast or you're not going to be able to survive. And some people are going, how am I going to survive? Uh, uh, I'll lose my job. I'll lose my paycheck. I'll, uh, okay. And other people are like, I've been giving money away for a long time. And you know what? God continually meets my needs. I, I can go without the government's handout and I'm just going to trust the Lord. Makes God your source instead of the government. Yeah. That's so, very good. Well, let's take one more call here. <laughs> I tell you, I enjoy listening to Bill, but man, we don't get many calls in. But anyway, let's go to Frank. You're calling in from Missouri. Frank, you're on Truth and Liberty with Andrew and Bill. Yeah, I'm grateful. Uh, I got a question about uh, about gold in my ear, but I want to ask uh, Brother Bill uh, if, if he remembers being in Rolla, Missouri at a Freedom Rally and uh, talking to me, and uh, uh, and I asked him about the where he got, and he pulled out his Library of Congress card, and gave gave it to me, blew my mind. Anyways, I I want to ask about your book. Did you uh, rewrite it to the uh, the forty three presidents of the United States? Uh, did you put Obama in there on the forty fourth one? That ain't my question. My question is about <laughs> Golda Meir. I saw a clip about her today that uh, she had a uh, a Palestinian passport from 1921 to 1948, and uh, she was commenting uh, uh, on her, uh, you know, her prime ministership. Uh, and I just want to know uh, 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 about Israel. Is is that a, is 1948 the first time that they won a war? In the 1967, was was another time that they won a war? Right. So the land was since Hadrian 135 AD, uh, the Romans had put the land Palestine on there, the name Palestine. It was part of the Ottoman Empire and it was considered Southern Syria. But then afterwards, the Jews chose the name Palestine. And so there was a rabbi, Stephen Wise, who was friends with uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And he was the head of the, the Palestinian fund for to relocate Jews over there. And so Palestine was the homeland of the Jews. And, and it was just sort of taken for granted. Um, it was not until the 1960s that in Moscow they started the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Anything with liberation in it, you know that's a Soviet organization, right? The, the ELN in Bolivia and the FARC in Colombia, anything with you know, liberation, that was them coming into a country to take it over. They call it to liberate it from its leadership, but they, they want to make it into a Soviet puppet. Um, so it wasn't until the 1960s that they came up with the Palestinians as a separate people group. But if you do DNA testing, the Palestinians have the same DNA as the other Arabs in that area. 
And, um, uh, but Jesus is the answer. Uh, uh, Kamal Salim uh, is a friend of mine, and he was a, a terrorist. And he met Yasser Arafat, and Yasser Arafat was like, oh, this is one of our young, and he says that he crawled through the tunnels and he would shoot at the Jews. One of his little friends got killed, and he was going to other countries and recruiting terrorist cells. And he came to America and he was recruiting a terrorist cell. And um, he gets in a car accident and fractures his neck, and the doctor does an operation. And, uh, but he has to be laid up, and he was living in an apartment by himself. And so the doctor is a Christian, takes care of him. And he says, the doctor witnessed to me. And he said, I was so glad he told me the truth. But he, when he, he told me that, you know, that, uh, that Allah was not the same as the God of the Bible. And he says, I would get so mad at him, but I was um, living, you know, in his house. So I had to be nice. And he says, but they would trust me. And he says, I would think at night, I thought I could get, I could kill the whole family at nighttime and they never would know it. And, and he says that if they wouldn't know the thoughts. Anyway, when he's finally good enough to go home, they, they give him car keys. They go, you totaled your car. Here's, here's keys to a, another. He goes home to his apartment. He hadn't been there in six months. And he kneels down and he um, prays to Allah. And he says, you know what Allah told him? Nothing. And he said, he pulled out a gun. He's about to take his life. And he says, Jesus walked in the room. And he says, I don't know if it was spiritual or what, however. But he said, the, the Lord told him, you were about to take your life. Why don't you give it to me? And he becomes a Christian. Yeah, Kamal's been on this program numerous times. And he also said that that doctor and his family, the way he treated his wife was a big witness because, man, they treat women like trash in Islam. And, and one of the verses that is effective in sharing the, the love of God with a Muslim is Isaiah 61. Jesus quotes it, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. To, to free the captives and give sight to the blind and to heal the brokenhearted. There is no verse, there's no concept in all of Islam that Allah wants to heal your broken heart. That's a foreign concept. Allah doesn't care about your heart. Allah demands submission. Yeah. And you never know if you've submitted enough. And you never, Muhammad even said, though I'm the prophet of Allah, I don't know what Allah will do with me. There's no security in that. It's just a religion of works. And when you say, no, God, the God of the Bible, wants to heal your broken heart. He cares about you on the inside. And I've prayed with Muslims, and they start weeping. The, the, the presence of the Lord comes on them, and they'll, start, they'll, they'll feel love for the first time. And so it's important for us to, to make it clear that we love the person. We do not love the Salafi Wahhabi teaching, right? It's hardware versus software. Uh, the, there's the computer and there's the software program. We love the person, right? The, the, the body, the, the person. We don't like the Salafi software program. And, um, and so the gospel is, in a sense, a, a behavioral software program. It's the way to get to heaven, but it's this love that, that God loves you and wants to forgive you. And so... Um, Do you know Muhammad Faridi? He's not a, personally. He's a graduate of our school, and he's been on this program also many times, and he's now born again. But anyway, he was a jihadist, and he killed people and stuff. But he said that there was no love in Islam, and when he found out that God loved him, he had one guy that converted from Islam, and... He had joy, and he asked him what happened. And he told him about how God loved him. He said that it was that love that just totally turned his life around because there isn't that concept in Islam at all. It's all hatred, performance. It's terrible. It's, it's religion that works. And even the Apostle Paul, he killed Christians. Yep. And yet the, the Lord the, revealed himself to him. Wrote half of the books of the New Testament. Yeah, and so, so God's in the business of loving people and letting people experience the love of God. And he wants to love you for the rest of eternity. 
And so yield to him and accept. He's made a way. Jesus paid for all your sins. So you don't have to think you're good enough to go to heaven. Um, you, you believe in Jesus that he was good enough to die on the cross to pay for all your sins. And then you just receive the forgiveness. Well, we're just about out of time, but I'd like you to advertise your website and these products again, because man, you've shared so much information and some of this you need to meditate on. It, it takes a while to digest it. So tell them what you got. Well, um, this one's who is the king in America? And I go through 6,000 years of world history. The most common form of government is kings who rule through fear. Nimrod, Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsar. The first example of a people ruling themselves without a king was ancient Israel, 1400 BC, come out of Egypt for 400 years, no king. It works because everybody's taught the law and everybody's personally accountable to God to follow the law. And God knew they would break the law. So once a year they had the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, they sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. Everybody's sins in the country are forgiven for the past year. They start the new year off with a clean slate. Obviously that's foreshadowing Jesus. He's our atonement. And, uh, but this 400 year period, Hebrew Republic is what inspired the colonial founders of America where we have a government without a king. So that's this book. Another one's called Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present. It gives a lot of the Soviet tactics of critical race theory. And, and then this uh, DVD on Islam. And my website's AmericanMinute.com. And you've got a lot more material than just those three things. Yes. So anyway, go check it out. Thank you for being with us, Bill. I appreciate it. Just. I know this is like drinking from a fire hose, but praise God, uh, the material is there, so please go check it out. And we want to thank you for joining us. Remember that we do this every weekday from 3.30 until 5.30 Mountain Time, and we have different hosts on here and also different guests, and we address a lot of things and deal with current issues, and I just think it would be a blessing. Also, you can check out our website, truthandliberty.net, and we have a lot of information on there. And if you need any further ministry, we have a 24-hour-a-day uh, prayer line that is open 24-7, and you can call us at 719-635-1111, and there's people there that will take your call and minister to you any way we can. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for being with us, Bill. God bless you, and we'll see you again tomorrow for Truth and Liberty Live Call-In Show. God bless you. Thank you for joining today's Truth and Liberty livecast. You can watch today's and past livecasts in our archives at truthandliberty.net. Our goal is to educate Christians and connect them with resources and organizations to help them impact their sphere of influence. You can help us accomplish this by making a donation at truthandliberty.net slash donate. Join us next time for more Truth and Liberty.